It's kind of like your really goofy uncle that walks out naked at Thanksgiving. I, I want to pause the episode and I want to learn more about your family at Thanksgiving now. <laughs> right, right. I know. Well, first of all, how do you know my uncle? <laughs> That's my uncle. <laughs> Hey, Prog fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by Craig and Lee. We are three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show, or you can contact us directly via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you just can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show. Oh my gosh, how are you guys doing tonight? I'm great. How are you, Lee? I'm great. Cool. Doing good. Can we be any more tepid than that? <laughs> Things yeah, are within non-operating parameters. I'm awesome. It's zero degrees outside, and yes, I haven't really it is. been outside except to shovel snow and scrape the snow off the car for Mrs. Abramson. So, uh, a little stir-crazy today. Yeah, I hear that. It's been like three or four days of just really, really cold here in Colorado. It was a record this morning, seven below. We broke a record. Yes. Wow, that's not a record you necessarily want to break in no, February. I don't think so. Better the record than the pipes. That's right. Yes, that is true. Because then it, we would not be recording this show because my kitchen is right above my recording area. Ooh. Since we last talked, what have you guys been up to? I'll start with you tonight, Lee. I have been working on a new song with Derek Sherinian. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Tell us more. So last podcast, we talked about Derek Sherinian's tweet where he was soliciting people that had unpublished MP3s to contact him. And he would play a short demo on top of that. And then you could discuss having him play on your full track. So I picked out an old one that um, it's actually the second song I ever wrote and was never happy with, never put it on an album, just put it away and dug it back out, kind of rewrote it for guitar and sent it his way. And he promises 24 hour turnaround, but I would say not even six hours later, he had taken about 30 seconds of it and written a keyboard line on top, sent it back and said, tell me what you think of this. And so we started chatting back and forth on the details, like price and writing credits and those kind of things. And he was very positive, liked the track, and said he would love to play on it. Matter of fact, while I was thinking over the price and having him do it, he turned around and did the entire track, about a minute and a half worth of material, and said, what do you think of this? And so after a lot of thought, I decided, what the heck? This is really what I love doing. So I paid him and said, yeah, let's do this. So he's written a whole series of keyboard lines on top of what I sent, and I've been putting all that together, and that's really what I've been focusing on the last two weeks. That's awesome. So will he get a songwriting credit for that? No, that was one of the details we went through. I keep all the songwriting credits for the song. I can say featuring Derek Sherinian after the title, but I can't use his image or any videos to promote it. There's some rules I have to follow, but I do get to keep songwriting credit. That's cool. 
That's awesome. But I mean, if you choose to release it, you're going to say featuring Derek Shereen yes. and then like <laughs> that helps. Absolutely. So I've got all of his core tracks in now. I don't have a solo in yet, which he did send me today. So I've got to put that in. Oh, how's the solo? I haven't even listened to it, to be perfectly honest. Just getting ready to do the podcast. And then I got to put vocals on it and do a final mix and all this. So won't play it tonight, but I should have it ready by next podcast. Will we get the exclusive? Do you mean to play it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like we go, we go first. Well, we have to go through his agent and his label yeah, and get you clearance. Know, for I have that. to give you permission, but, and if we play more than 30 seconds of it, I'm suing us. No way. <laughs> I'm going to sick Rick Beato on you. <laughs> that, that's a great threat. I'm going to sick Rick Beato on you. <laughs> we got to remember that. Yep. Awesome. It's awesome. It's been a blast. Been a ton of fun doing this. That's really cool. Yeah. What have you been up to, Craig? Uh, I'm recording a song with Jordan Rudess. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, not actually true. That was my wet dream the other night. <laughs> God. <laughs> there goes the E rating. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Even if we don't cuss, we're going to get an E rating. So me recording with Jordan Rudess was your wet dream? <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> which, which part was... Never mind. Yeah. Okay. TMI. I record with children. Say it as if to a child. <laughs> so I signed up for this thing. It's like School of Rock, but for grownups. Yeah. yeah. And instead of rock, it's jazz. And it's also not a school. But aside from that, it's exactly the same thing. Aside from all the salient details. <laughs> it's uh, called the Colorado Conservatory for Jazz Arts. It was set up originally for kids to expose them to jazz. And they just recently started doing adult combos. And I'm three weeks into a 12-week thing, and having done stand-up comedy and having jumped out of airplanes, it's getting easier, but it's been very intimidating Wow! for some reason that I can't really put my finger on. Mm. But it's really cool. We're all starting to get to know each other, and we've had the charts for a couple of weeks, and I've been practicing a ton. After one of my solos yesterday, the instructor was like, hey, nice solo on that one, Craig. Oh, and cool. I cave it was like oh, oh god it's all i need it was awesome yeah, i'm three weeks in and i kind of crossed a little chasm last night i felt like i was starting to get the groove in the truest sense of the word that's great nice that's awesome yeah how are you tony since last time i have not been doing much in the music realm i've actually been writing a lot of code because that's kind of one of the other things i do so i've just been focusing on that trying to do some open source projects is it work related or is it fun related yes i'll just leave it at that is it work-related and fun-related? Yes. Got it. Okay. Some of it's skill sharpening, stuff like that. And actually, I've got some things out of some of this work that I think I'm going to be able to bring back to that Mellotron project eventually. <sighs> Maybe it eventually will tie into some music stuff. Exciting. Like we also like to talk about, and I'll start with you, Craig. What have you been listening to? Well, besides a ton of jazz, because that's what I'm trying to immerse myself in, listening to quite a few bands, one of which we're going to talk about tonight, and not too much else. Cool. And what about you, Lee? What have you been really grooving to? Well, when this work started with Derek Sharanian, I entertained adding a prog section to this song that he's working on. And so I pulled out some old ACT. I wanted to study the way those guys do some transitions, which they are very adept at. I ended up not adding any rewrites to the song, but I did get to listen through a lot of the ACT catalog. Unfortunately, nothing new for this cycle. So, Awesome. Well, I have been listening to something new because 
Bum, 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 bum. Yep, we were waiting on that. You got there. I have the new Star One. I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound really snotty, and maybe it is snotty, and it's my subconscious speaking. It's the Arion record we deserved last time. Hmm. It is awesome. I just love this record, and I love what Aryan chose to do, at least in the deluxe editions where he's got two discs, and the second disc is like all the same tracks with different vocalists. And he has this big part in these deluxe editions. He basically writes an essay saying like how this album came to be. He kind of has this well-known TikTok pattern in the community, like whatever he does next is a reaction to what he did just before. And so he talks mm-hmm. about how Transitus was much more operatic or even kind of like a musical play. He just said, you know what, I'm going to take the constraints and say, we're just going to do metal this time around. And that's what turned it into a Star One record. But originally, because of COVID, the way they were recording, he had to really rely on guide vocals even more than usual before. And so originally, the second disc was just going to be the guide vocals because people have asked for that. And he just had more and more people he wanted to work with. So what was going to be just the guide vocals turned into, here's an entire second disc of all other vocalists. So really, really good. I'm going to leave it at that because that's going to be my what people should really go listen to. Sure. Go listen to this album. This album is awesome. Cool. So what do we have in the way of prog news, Lee? Well, you covered Star One, which is great. Jethro Tull has released The Zealot Gene that came out end of January. I have not listened to that. I have not either. Streaming is available at the end of January. CD will not be out until March, which is a little weird, but... New Steve Vai, the album is Inviolate, and it was released in January 28th. I haven't listened to that one yet either. New Tears for Fears, the tipping point, will be available by the time listeners hear this. Not quite ready yet for us recording, but I will grab that when it's available. Animals as Leaders has released a new single called Gordian Knot, which is really good. I like it a lot. I love it. And their new album, Parisia, will be out in March 25th. New Flower Kings, they've released a single called Revolution, Mm -hmm. and they are going to release a double album called Royal Decree, March 4th, so that's next week. Kite Parade, new band, the album's called The Way Home, and they've released a single called Letting Go that I really liked quite a bit. This is Andy Foster, Nick DiVirgilio, Joe Crabtree, and Steve Thorne. Really looking forward to that. I don't have a release date for that yet. New Marillion is out next week, and I am super psyched to get that an hour before it's dark, and it will also release March 4th. So next week, there's a whole lot of releases coming out. Haken has dropped a little teaser tweet saying they will have a new album out, but that's it so far, no date. And finally, Diego Tejeda has been working with a new band on a new album. Don't have a release date for that yet, but... We might just have a little surprise in the future about this, so stay tuned. The only thing I would add in there is that from a prog metal side, we do have a new Coheed and Cambria coming out in May called Vaxus 2, A Window of the Waking Mind, and they just dropped a new single for that, The Liars Club, and it's really, really good. I'm hoping that we get another heavy dose of prog and prog metal this spring, kind of like we did last year through like midsummer. We'll see. Yep. And I'm going to turn it over to Craig to tell us about something unheard of. It's unheard of. Dun, 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 dun. I need some theme music. Lee, write us some theme music. Okay, Wait, I'll be right back. We'll get Derek Sherney in on it. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the last two segments we did, and they were the first two segments of unheard of, 
I featured a bunch of white guys from Great Britain and Siberia. And I thought, you know what? We should see if there's women in Prague. Spoiler, there are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know that. But unheard of women. Anyway, I just thought it would be useful to kind of break out of my little template of Prague metal with awesome guitar. So I found a band out of Pittsburgh, and they're called Persephone's Dream. Let's just start with a clip. I really like that a lot. Yeah, very interesting start. That's got a little Nightwish feel to it for me. Cool. So Persephone's Dream, it's the project of guitarist Rowan Poole and bassist Chris Siegel. These two guys met at a Thanksgiving party in 1993. Rowan Poole is a software engineer, and he taught this guy Siegel, who is uh, also a software engineer, how to play bass. And by May of 94, they were writing a bunch of songs together. And they never really had aspirations of being in a band, per se. They just wanted to do studio music. They did one album called Moonspell. That's when they brought in a, a female vocalist. This next song is called Full Moon, and it's off their second album, but really kind of the first one, I guess you might say, that they're proud of. Man, good production. I really like that guitar key sound. And you got to realize they're absolutely a prog band, and these are prog songs, so 30-second clips is really not doing them justice. Anyway, besides those two guys, this, I think, is their latest lineup. They have a drummer named Ed Wanko, percussionist John Talon, keyboardist Ken Finney, but they've really had a ton of personnel changes over the years. There's a ton of music of theirs up on the web. I do want to give a shout out to every female vocalist that they've had over the years. Karen Nicely, Kim Finney, Heidi Engel, Colleen Gray, Josie Crooks, Judy Lynn, Niederkorn, and Ashley Pure. I tried to listen to as much of them as I could to listen to each of the vocalists. And they're all kind of in a similar range, but they also have their own style to some degree. Mm -hmm. Their stuff is definitely prog, not metal. That last song, I thought it had a little bit of a Rush flavor at the very beginning. Felt like they were channeling a little bit of uh, Alex Life's in there. We'll listen to one more clip. This is something called Temple in Time. One of the things I really like about these guys is I just think their production is stellar. Yes, it is. Yeah. They're not trying to be metal. It's more kind of atmospheric prog, maybe. A lot of long songs, a lot of concept suites of multiple movement kind of things. And there's just a ton of music out there. I was really surprised the more I looked, the more I was finding. 
their new release, and it just came out. It's called Incandescent Shimmer. Uh, it's on SoundCloud. My call to action for listeners is to go and look for a song called Incandescent Shimmer. Kind of reminds me a little bit of an updated version of the Motels uh, band from the 80s that I really enjoyed. The band is Persephone's Dream. I've really enjoyed digging into them. They're on Instagram at PD Prog Rock. They're on SoundCloud by name. They've got a ton of stuff up on YouTube, Bandcamp. They're on Facebook, so check them out. Cool. Thank you very much, Craig. Yep. I can't quite place it right now, but that last clip really hit me. I think maybe it's the bass forward nature of it. Each album has a slightly different flavor. They're refining their technique is really what it seems like. Awesome. Good stuff. Let's go talk about ELP, however you define that. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Love it. Now I want a hamburger. (laughs) That's the wrong song, man. No, they used Hoedown in the beef. Oh, no, you're right. It is. That is the right song. What are you talking about? Beef. It's it's what's for dinner. Oh, gotcha. That is right. Yep. It was Hoedown. Huh. Not that Hoedown. Yeah. What in the world can we say about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in the course of 45 minutes that has not already been said? Got me. Well, I've loved them forever, as I've said over and over again. They're basically a band that does covers of classical music songs that nobody ever heard of. And that's what they did coming out of the gate, and they were an overnight sensation. They got started in 1970. They all came out of other bands in England. Keith Emerson was in a band called The Nice, and my understanding is they were huge in England at the time. Greg Lake, obviously King Crimson. Who? A band called King Crimson. They still tour. Oh, really? Man, I never see them. Yeah, yeah. You know, you should check out some back UP3 episodes. <laughs> Ian McDonald just died, by the way. Yeah. He's he, also a founding member of Foreigner. Did you know that? I did not know that until That's you said interesting. that. I never made the connection. Yeah. And then Carl Palmer was in Atomic Rooster. So they were all very active musicians in the day. And Keith Emerson, after achieving success in Nice, decided, I kind of just want a three-piece. I want a bass player and I want a drummer, and they both need to be really, really good musicians. He met Greg Lake while the Nice was on a bill with King Crimson, and they talked a lot about music before they ever played a note together. They had a lot of compatibility as far as their attitudes toward music, so they played together a little bit. They started auditioning other drummers. For a time, Hendrix was going to be a guitar player for them uh, because they were talking to Hendrix's drummer, so they were going to be help. Hendrix, Emerson Lake, and not Palmer, but somebody else. Is that right? It's on the internet. It's got to be true. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's probably true then. <laughs> it could have also just been hell, right? Depending on. Yeah, Emerson Lake and uh, Lakshmi. I don't know. Uh, anyway, that didn't work out. Their overnight sensation story is interesting. Mm-hmm. They started recording some songs and writing some songs and doing covers of classical songs. And they performed once in a town called Plymouth, England, in front of a very small crowd because they were afraid they might suck. 
and they ended up having a gig, I think it was like a week later, at the Isle of Wight Music Festival in front of 300,000 people. Talk about a step function. Seriously. It's interesting if you put yourself back in 1970, before there was an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and imagine like in the middle of the afternoon, I think they were on like a Thursday afternoon. Mm -hmm. They were not the headliner by any means. I put together a medley of their first two songs that they did at Isle of Wight. They opened with Barbarian and then went into Take a Pebble. Just imagine you've never heard anything like this before. So you're starting with some heavy stuff. So you're like, what the heck is this? And then all of a sudden, classical jazzy weird piano. And this is the opening song of the Isle of Wight. And listen to the bass in there. Listen to Greg Lake. Okay, and then the big finish. So that was their first song at Isle of Wight, and you're thinking, what the heck was that? And then this happens. Something totally chill. By the way, he's strumming the strings inside the piano up during this. That's how Emerson Lake Palmer came out of the gate. They did a 45-minute set, all off the first album. Most of them covers of classical songs that nobody ever heard of. They really kind of crushed it. Yeah, I had never heard anything about the Isle of Wight Festival, but I had keyboard player friends that said, have you heard Emerson Lake and Palmer? You've got to go listen to Lucky Man. Because even though Lucky Man is really a Greg Lake acoustic song, absolutely, the solo at the end, I think, is a watershed moment for synthesizers. Because unless you'd heard something like by, say, Wendy Carlos, You'd never really heard synthesizers on a mainstream album. I think you're probably right, because this is 1970. Yeah. You and I have talked about this before. That square wave synthesizer solo. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely perfect. Every keyboard player I knew was like, what is this? And we're just completely mesmerized. Yeah. And then the song Knife Edge from that same album. Sing the praises of the Machines feed the furnace. If they take us, they will burn us. 
for me, it was like the keyboard version of Jimi Hendrix. That's the way I've always put it. Yeah. Those first three or four albums, that really, really gritty C3 sound through a Leslie that he got, nobody else got that. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the Isle of Wight festival that they played, Hendrix was there, Cactus, Chicago, The Doors, Lighthouse, The Moody Blues, The Who, Miles Davis, Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell, Jesper Toll, Fly in the Family Stone, 10 years after. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Bree. I'm trying to understand when you say that this was out there for people that were hearing it in 1970, why was it out there? Think of the instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All keyboards. It was basically a jazz trio, but doing classical music. Again, the sound he got out of that organ was unlike anything anyone else was doing. And just the fact that it's front and center. Yeah. Right. Nobody was doing that. Plus piano. I mean, the dude is absolutely a virtuoso. Yeah, I agree. A virtuoso of virtuosos. And he's demonstrating that. And he's running around the stage like a nut. <laughs> yeah, he is a crazy man. So what I'm trying to understand, uh-huh. this wasn't his time and place for me. I come to ELP much later. Mm-hmm. They were a candle that started burning very bright, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to understand why that was. They play this club date make sure they don't suck. Then they immediately go to Isle of Wight. That's 300,000 plus. Uh-huh. Were they really popular right after Isle of Wight? Pretty much. Because Isle of Wight was covered by the press. Okay. And all three of them were known entities in the English music scene. They were an overnight sensation as a band, but it's not like they were unknown individually before that. That's right. And I don't mean any disrespect to any of the ELP fans that are listening here. I'm really trying to dig to a deeper truth. Were they an instant success because they were good? Or were they an instant success because, I I hate to use this phrase because I think You're going to say novelty act, aren't you? Yeah, kind of, like a boy band, like a constructed, (laughs) like the super group. Let me take Greg Lake and some Keith Emerson and sprinkle Well, first of all, they were were a super group of their own construction. Right. They were doing stuff that they wanted to do. It wasn't the record company that wanted them to do it. The way that labels tried to push things around, or the music scene, especially in England, tried to push things around, I'm trying to understand how their star started shining. Their star shone pretty much right out of the gate. Yeah, and it wasn't from any record company. It was in spite of record companies. I agree with the bombastic comment that Craig makes. Mm -hmm. Keith Emerson it's like a supernova going off on stage when you see him. It wasn't any kind of supergroup construction. I think this was totally backed up by the talent. This was a band that was unknown. They did a good job. Right. They took what they were doing and improved on it from album to album and got bigger and bigger rather quickly. And probably there was something in 1970 where maybe there was a thirst for something like that. Oh, I definitely agree with that. I think the name grew very, very quickly, but I don't think it took long at all before everybody just had to be seeing him. Mm -hmm. Okay. Again, this is coming from someone like me who wasn't of the era, because in my era, a lot of super groups happen and they just fall flat. Mm -hmm. And this definitely wasn't the case. As we said, there's a lot of talent here. We need to just point out that that's an understatement. Yeah, that's a massive (laughs) understatement. You made a comment that Greg Lake and Keith Emerson had a similar perspective on music. What was that? They felt like they would be able to create music together. Okay. Having said that, after the first album, and they have this overnight success, 
they almost didn't last more than an album. They're, they're about ready to record their second album. Emerson shows up with Tarkas and plays it to Greg Lake. And Greg's like, what the heck is this? So here's what Greg Lake heard and kind of scratched his head. Keith Emerson shows up with that, and here's the uh, song that Greg Lake ended up throwing on the album as well. And again, it sort of shows the whole skitzy thing. Greg Lake has always said that Emerson Lake of Palmer is kind of a schizo band. You've got the Keith Emerson bombast, and then you've got the Greg Lake love songs, and the Carl Palmer who says, yeah, we're not really a prog band because Greg writes love songs and prog bands don't do love songs. From 1970 to 1973, so basically in the space of four years, they record four of the most important albums in the prog rock canon. Emerson Lake of Palmer, Tarkus, Trilogy, Brain Salad Surgery. Mm-hmm. That is a run of albums unlike any. I totally agree with that. Some might argue that after that, they kind of started to veer off a little bit. One of the more interesting things is then they get to works and things kind of start to go south. So there are this overnight sensation. Mm-hmm. They have this run of albums. They're just operating on all cylinders. By the time you get to Brain Salad Surgery, that's the album that I think prog fans love more than anything. Yes. And prog critics hate more than anything. Why do you think that? A lot of the uh, press did not like Prague and specifically didn't like ELP because, again, bombast, wall of sound, all the stuff that they do, you love it or you hate it. I agree with that. You definitely have an opinion. I think it does peak at brain salad surgery, right? Yeah. And Works almost broke the band. For me, when Works came out, that's the point that I think you could see the cracks in the band. Works Volume 1 is a double album, and each member of the band got one side of the vinyl, and then the fourth side was the three of them, the Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer contribution. And the sides were so different. Keith Emerson, Piano Concerto on the first, and then Greg Lake's side was a lot more acoustic, maybe even love songs. And then Carl Palmer's side was some redone earlier ELP songs, and then the band doing a modern spin on some classical pieces again. I think there's a Prokofiev piece in there. But that's where it became glaringly clear that there were some pretty big differences in what different band members wanted to do. Yeah. And if you just think about Keith Emerson and what he was doing from the first album until Works, he was continuing to push himself and always really being true to what he wanted to do. Yes. And he was at the point, I've done these previous four albums and they've been successful. What do I want to do now to continue to push my envelope? I want to write a piano concerto. Yeah. By golly, that's what he did. And he got an orchestra and they went on tour and almost broke the band financially. 
London Symphony Orchestra, of all things. Is that true? Yeah, on the album, it is. Uh, when they toured, it was a bunch of music students. Okay. This is also the album that has Fanfare for the Common Man. That was an amazing hit. That's an amazing thing. Carl Palmer has such conflicted comments about his time with Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Because he's like, we're a prog band, but somehow or another, we break through. Fanfare for the Common Man is released as a single. It's an instrumental, and it either goes to like number one or number two in the UK. Mm. Right. There is a really long solo in the middle of that. You would think you would never hear over airplay. Yeah. I don't even think they did a radio cut. Given the piano concerto, A-side, and then whatever Greg Lake Greg was Lake doing, B-side. B-side, and then Carl Palmer's side, why not take that piano concerto and release it as a solo work? He wanted to keep the band together. So we're, we're staying together for the children. We're staying together for the money? Yeah, the money, the record company, they had contractual obligations. Do you think right. that they were going to make more money as it being an ELP release versus it being a solo release? That's usually the case, right? And by the way, it was not hugely successful. Hmm. It was uh, almost a failed experiment because they're just up and to the right for their first four albums. And then after brain salad surgery, they take a little break and then they do works. So you say that, but it's, it reaches number nine on the UK charts, number 12 on the US Billboard charts. And it went to number two on the UK singles chart. I think it was critically. I think when you read the articles and stuff. So I always thought works volume two didn't do very well. I thought volume one did fine. Yeah, that might be. Yeah, Works Volume 2 was more like a B-sides cut, like things that didn't make it onto Works Volume 1. But Works Volume 1 also has Pirates on it, which I think is a huge accomplishment. You said that, and I listened to that today a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And uh, Go ahead, say yeah, it. I didn't get there. <laughs> is it a time and place for you? No, for me, Brain Salad Surgery with Carnival 9, that's a multi-movement piece, then works with the Keith Emerson Piano Concerto. And then Pirates is orchestrated, even though it's not multi-movement. It just really cemented for me that ELP was not just this power trio. They were writing multi-movement pieces similar to symphonies on these modern instruments. And I actually thought that was historic. Cool. I'm going to transition to talk about how they were live versus in the studio. Okay. Because we both have disparate views on that. Here's a clip that you just kind of have to play because it's an ELP episode. What song is that? Uh, it's cool. I think you'd like it. I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's a good song. That should be the cold open for this show. I think it's been done. Yeah, that's exactly why I didn't do it. it. I just felt like there had to be a place to put it, because you sort of have to do it, but I don't want to do it in the beginning. Why do you think you and I have disparate views of them live? So I have seen ELP either two or three times. Mm-hmm. We'll not talk about the most recent time because that's an outlier. I saw them when I was in college, and it was well after brain salad surgery. It might even have been after works, Mm -hmm. because I think it was like in 80, maybe. Okay. Okay. My uh, consciousness was not 
too dialed in. <laughs> Are you trying to say you were loaded? I was probably pretty wasted. Kids, if you're listening to this, don't buy drugs. Become a rock star, and then they give them to you for free. By the way, Keith Emerson had a, a drug problem for a while. I didn't realize that. I keep reading that in articles that he had a pretty strong drug problem. Yeah, quite the coke habit. Anyway, my point is, I did see them. It was before they were old and gray, mm-hmm. but it was pretty non-memorable. Even in the 80s, you're and saying. I was a super fan. Yeah. So there's a transition that happens in Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. There is all the infighting between Greg Lake and Keith Emerson. Uh-huh. Carl Palmer is more the diplomat in the middle. Yeah, Carl is Switzerland. Like you said, Tarkas almost didn't happen because Emerson and Lake were just so much at loggerheads with each other. But that changes with Black Moon in the hot seat because I think Love Beach is a complete aberration. You mean abomination. <laughs> we'll talk about it. We're going to talk about that. You don't have Emerson, Lake, and Powell in here. Well, that's because they're not Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Okay, that's fair. But those three albums, Emerson, Lake, and Powell, Black Moon, and In the Hot Seat all have a very different feel. Mm-hmm. They are still virtuoso songs, mm-hmm. but they tend to be very limited. They're not a three-movement song like Carnival Nine, and they tend to be kind of radio-friendly. Mm-hmm. Things like Touch and Go and the songs that they got a little more traction out of. Mm-hmm. And if you saw them then, I can totally see why you were underwhelmed. So that's not when I saw them, because that's in the 90s. Okay. I'm going to say it was probably right before Love Beach. So 1978. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what's going on with them then, but I'm surprised you were underwhelmed. It could have been me. The time and place, I was totally stoned and wasted, and I had bad seats, and it was at the Spectrum in Philadelphia that's got the worst sound in the world. Right. That's a ball arena kind of thing. Oh, God, it was awful. This is what it turns into. This is what a lot of Black Moon is, because this is a very radio-friendly version of ELP. When was this? No, It's Emerson, Lincoln Powell, so it's got to be 82. I mean, it has that feel. To, to me, it sounds like mid ninety or mid-80s, rather, Genesis. Well, I don't think it sounds like Genesis, but it still has moments of brilliance like this. That is so Keith Emerson. I love that. That's a nice move. So it still has that virtuoso prog element. Still Keith being Keith. But a lot of it is just packaged up in a five or six minute song. Hmm. Very radio friendly. And that's what Black Moon ends up being like as well. I agree with that. There's still killer stuff on Black Moon, but packaged very, very differently now. The reason I said that sounds like mid-80s Genesis is as a child of the 80s, -hmm. there is a very distinctive sound to the 80s music right a very synthy trumpet kind of thing synthy trumpet that song to me would have sounded comfortable on the top gun soundtrack oh god <laughs> that makes me want to throw up i god i'm sorry but i i agree with you <laughs> <laughs> not all of it right and i'm not trying to take away any of the virtuosity of any of it and right? again that's emerson Lake pal correct yeah 
that makes sense to me, I guess is all okay. I'm trying to say is like it tracks. Mm-hmm. We were talking about how you really didn't like Black Moon that much. When I thought about it later, I think that could be one of the reasons why. Because it's really ELP packaged in these little five or six minute segments. Yeah. Yeah. I got turned on to ELP in my pre-stoner days, 13, 14 years old, and just was blown away and mm-hmm. really never got past those first four albums. Then I'm surprised to hear you say they seemed flat to you when you saw them live so when i saw them was my stoner days okay time elapsed it's that time and place (laughs) i do have bands that i like i can definitely listen to their studio records but when i see them live i know that it's not going to translate there are just some bands that are like that maybe some performances some venues but i can definitely understand how you could feel that way craig yeah well elp in albuquerque Takiva is the best concert i've ever seen bar none but I also saw them with three in a bar in Boulder. Mm-hmm. It was great to see Keith Emerson again, but I don't remember that as an outstanding performance. They really are famous for amazing concerts, and there's a million bootlegs, and mm-hmm. they toured relentlessly. Mm-hmm. Talk about what made that concert so good for you. For me, Keith Emerson is the pinnacle of keyboardists. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was just completely floored with everything he did. So I always thought just what he was doing on stage was incredible, but I never saw the twirly piano, Keith Emerson. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. I never saw the knives in the back of the keyboard, Keith Emerson. Like, I know he had this little ribbon controller he would play, and he used to attach a bottle rocket to it and act like it was a phallus. (laughs) I never saw that. The only time I ever saw him do that stuff was on TV, like California Jam. Really? When I saw him, he just played. Just to watch him do hoedown. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's one of my top 10 experiences ever. Nice. That would be amazing. Is the Kiva Center large, small? It's not very large, but the biggest thing is it, it looks like the Buell. So it's set up. Okay. So it's a theater. It's, it's not a theater. A yeah. It's got sound dampening. The ceilings are slanted. So it's built as an acoustic arena. Yeah. It's not a 50 gallon drum. Maybe if I would have seen them in that environment, it might have been better. I don't know. Yeah. So, talking about live shows, I saw Emerson Lake at Palmer open up for Deep Purple. That's amazing. In the early 90s. And either they started early or I wasn't paying attention because I was out getting a beer <laughs> and I hear, and I'm like, oh shit. And it was kind of weird because, again, this is the 90s. They didn't look to be in peak physical condition. <laughs> so that was an experience for me where it was great seeing keith emerson being keith emerson but it was also a tiny bit sad be- seeing keith emerson being keith uh, emerson this was at an outdoor arena it was at it was at a uh, fiddler's green fiddler's in green. greenwood okay. village colorado god backing up deep purple that just blows my mind i gotta be honest i didn't even really stay for deep purple because i went for elp <laughs> right i've done that <laughs> i've done that too so keith emerson at this point in the early 90s He was kind of doing the wrestle with the Hammond organ thing and knife in the keyboard to make it sustained thing and a little bit of keyboard humping, you know, and it's like, Keith, man, you know, yeah, it's kind of like the band, you know, was quote unquote in their teenage days so they could do that stuff. But now you guys are mature on the mature band tour. You're a senior. Yeah. Don't be humping the keyboard, Keith. You take people to these shows and they're just like, just listen to this guy play. Uh-huh. And then he's like, you know, flipping up and down yeah. on a, it's just like, come on, Keith, you're way beyond that. Why are you doing that? Yeah. And I never got it. Nah, that's sad. Yeah. I don't know. 
for me, the number of times I listen to those first four albums is insane. Oh, yeah. And no live performance could really do it justice, to be honest, probably. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the thing. Like episode one, maybe it even was where you were talking about how you fell in love with ELP through Trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I got to come up to speed on ELP. And I put Black Moon on and I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah. And so then I kind of put ELP away for a while. And then I got Trilogy and I got Brain Salad Surgery. Mm-hmm. And now I'm kind of in the same camp going backwards. I'm like, yep, my experience with ELP pretty much for me stops at Brain Salad Surgery. So it's the first albums up to there. For me, with like the very first notes of Trilogy were life-changing. In what way? Like, what was it about that that did that for you? It was different. Mm-hmm. Sonically, it resonated with me. And again, keep in mind, this is 13-year-old Craig who has never heard anything like this, but I was starting to become pretty involved with music. I was starting to teach myself to play piano a little bit. Trilogy opens with just strings. Right there, just that progression, the harmonic content of that little run, Mm -hmm. to me, was so resonant with something I'd never heard and just was so beautiful. Beautiful piano work, sort of sparse, not even doing the virtuoso stuff yet. Mm -hmm. Never heard someone play piano like that. And it just really struck with me. And then you get midway through and this shit happens. You know, again, 13 year old Craig here and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. spoke to me. It was just beautiful. I listened to that, and I listened to Abaddon's Bolero, which is the third track on that side. Just those two songs, probably for months, mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Never even got to the other side until a year or two later. When I was listening to this, I was like, okay, this is cool. I get this. And I liked all the synths and stuff like that. But what really sold it for me, it was Hoedown, because huh. I grew up in the 90s, where Hoedown, as we were joking about before, was used in every single beef commercial (laughs) it was drilled into me and then this version it sounded like the cyberpunk version of hoedown right like Mm -hmm. it sounds so awesome i was like okay yeah i'm in for this elp journey whatever it takes so tony you mentioned that you listened to carnival nine first second and third impression Mm -hmm. and it made you think of industrial music Yeah, something that really struck me when we were talking about Carnival 9 was how we approached it differently. Mm -hmm. When talking about it, you guys said that you heard more of a symphonic context with each of the impressions being more like a movement in a symphonic piece, which is fine. For me, I heard it more like remixes or reimagining of tracks that was common in the industrial scene in the 1990s. Honestly, I think even rap and R&B culture had this kind of philosophy as well with different artists taking something from one artist and then putting their own spin on it. For example, I'm a big KMFDM fan, particularly the 1990s era, as we've discussed previously. In their discography, they have 21 studio albums, but nearly 40 singles and remix albums. 
The big thing that would happen here is that when a single or remix EP was being released, KMFDM would share their original audio files with their peers and get them to do new versions, impressions, if you will, of the original track. Mm -hmm. So here's a couple of examples from KMFDM. This is from their 1992 album, Money. The track is called Help Us, Save Us, Take Us Away. And then later they released a single for that track. And then there are three different mixes from that track. A track entitled The Jaeger Remix, The Meister Remix, and then one called The Oktoberfest Remix. So we'll start with listening to the original track. And then they got a bit more aggressive with it on the Meister mix. Now, this is how they remixed it and reinterpreted it on the Jaeger mix. And then finally, they went really trancy ambient on the Oktoberfest mix. We saw this as a very common, almost expected approach to music throughout industrial music in the 1990s and the early 2000s. No. Some other bands that come to mind that did this are Nine Inch Nails, Gravity Kills, Stabbing Westward, White Zombie, Orbital, Pigface, and even Rammstein. In fact, most of the time they were remixing each other's stuff. So if you took any of the bands out of that list, chances are that they've remixed each other's stuff at least once. In fact, Nine Inch Nails did this pretty extensively with their EPs around the album The Downward Spiral to great effect. In some cases, they even had region-specific versions of these EPs with remixes that were exclusive to the version of the EP released in the UK or Japan, for example. Mm -hmm. More recently, I've seen Pussifer do this with Maynard James Keenan going so far as to say he explicitly does this and has this approach because he doesn't want there to be a singular version of the song. He wants there to be multiple different impressions that people can take something different out of each time. (laughs) So when I heard the multiple impressions of Carnival 9 with variations on motifs and slightly tweaked lyrics from impression to impression, that's what it brought up for me. I, I definitely get that it's probably more in line with what you guys are talking about the symphonic approach. Mm hmm. But perhaps this is a way for younger listeners to wrap their minds around what ELP was doing here. Yeah, what I like about that whole discussion is the fact that here's this music that's 50 almost years old, maybe Um, almost 50. And that's your connection point to it, Mm -hmm. which on the one hand is so foreign to me because my connection to the music is again, teenage Craig in 1975 or whatever. 
But I think that's what I love about sharing some of this music with other people is to see how they connect with it. Mm -hmm. To me, Carnival 9, it's actually four movements. It's listed as three. But if you take the first impression, part one and part Part, two, and just say it's four. So it's four pieces, just like a symphony is. Mm -hmm. But I never thought they were remixes of one track. They are all very different pieces. They're written in different keys. They have different voicings. The first impression is synth-heavy with all the lyrics. Second impression has jazz piano. Third impression has all the dissonant synthesizers. Mm -hmm. It's a different story. It's even a different key, I think. Like those detuned oscillators. Yeah, it's. I think it's completely different songs. But that's coming at it from a classical music perspective and having music lit kind of drilled into my head over and over again. Bach, Beethoven symphonies, Mozart symphonies, all that four movement pieces. So interesting. That always to me was what Carnival Nine sounded like. Was sort of a modern version of a symphony, where you come at it from the modern perspective, looking at something in retrospect. And I think that's interesting. Reverse chronological order. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, I don't know. You got to say something about Love Beach, man. Yeah, you can't right. get out of here. Okay, without saying Love Beach about Love is Beach. the elephant in the room. Let's talk about Love Beach. I did a, a fair amount of research on Love Beach. Way more than you wanted to. I wanted to know why. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So explain to me how one of the best musical bands of all time does Love Beach. Because they wanted to break up, but they were contractually obligated to do another album. Here's how it went down. So you know this dude, Amit Erdogan, who, when he passed away, Led Zeppelin thought so much of him that they basically got back together again and did a show? No. I've not heard this. You didn't hear that? At Live at O2? Uh-uh. He was an Atlantic Records executive. He was very influential behind the scenes. He was their guy at Atlantic Records and basically said, you owe us another record. Here's an idea. Why don't you guys go down to the Bahamas, hang out, because Keith Emerson had a house there. Right. Lake and Palmer, you guys just like rent a place and hang out. We'll set up a recording studio and record the album there, because you owe me an album, and that's what we're going to do. So, Love Beach is the name of the beach by Keith Emerson's thing. They named it after the place where the album was recorded. It wasn't all like nylon shirts, you know, down to the belly button. All right, so what's the deal with that? The deal with that (laughs) is the record company said, all right, we're going to take some shots for the album cover. And they just thought, all right, well, let's just sort of dress up a little bit because it was, what, the 80s or whatever? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so they basically just sort of like dressed up for a photo shoot and there was like hair and makeup and it's like, well, I guess we, yeah, we sort of look like the Bee Gees, but can't help that. We're young, attractive guys and we've been water skiing for three months. And, but the point is that's how those things happen, but they really didn't necessarily want to record an album. They sounds like they didn't really have any music to record. They phoned it in is what you're saying. Phoned it in. Okay. Got it. I was on Spotify or Apple Music or something when we were first recording the show and Love Beach came up as a joke at maybe in episode one or something. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to muscle through this. Mm-hmm. And oh, I did. God. I listened to the whole thing. It's, okay, there you go. So I do want to give a shout out to a woman named Rachel Flowers, who we came to learn about on the boat on one of the progressive cruises that we do. This is a young woman who is blind. She's been blind since birth. And she, among other things, is able to play Emerson Lake of Palmer songs as good as Keith Emerson. 
I really encourage listeners to go up to YouTube, search out Rachel Flowers doing Carnival 9 or Rachel Flowers doing Tarkus. She's so good and she's so sweet. We did get to meet her on the boat and she spent a lot of time with Keith Emerson. And I know that they did professionally do a lot of work together. And when he passed and when there was a benefit concert, she performed on, I want to say, Endless Enigma. Mm. And it's, on one hand, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And on the other hand, the saddest thing you've ever seen, because she's playing his parts beautifully and crying the entire time. And it is so moving. Anyway, I don't want to talk about ELP without mentioning Rachel Flowers. Just an amazing, amazing talent. Anyway, you know, what I sort of want to close with is, you know, my view of ELP is pretty myopic. It's the first four albums, ELP, Tarkus Trilogy, Brain Salad Surgery. I had all four of them. I wore them down to nothing. Just listened to them so much over the course of four or five years. Loved them to death. I still do. I really sort of asked the question of myself, if someone today tried to get a record company to support a band that did over-the-top covers of classical music songs that nobody ever heard of, would that fly? No. I, I kind of don't think so. They were in the right place at the right time, kind of to Tony's point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were a super group. Yeah, they had good management. But you know what? They played Isle of Wight, and unlike several of the bands that were on that bill that you never heard of, they did make it. People know ELP. Love them or hate them. They did produce an incredible canon of music in a short period of time. And then a whole lot more music after that. Yeah, for me, ELP was, it, it went beyond the first four into works and then Emerson, Lincoln, Powell. I think it changed modern music and absolutely changed prog music forever. Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer just took it to another level. Tony, any closing thoughts? What I want to think about maybe for a future episode is the classical influence in modern music. But like I think of Camelot and they have a song uh, called Forever and the main melody of that track is actually Solvig's lead from the Pierre Gint Suites. Well, mm. That's kind of an interesting through line uh, how bands do that and they kind of get away with it. I really thank you, Craig. I, I learned a lot here and hopefully the listeners got a lot out of that too. I know I certainly did. So as we part ways with ELP then, what are your recommendations, Lee and Craig, on, on what listeners can go listen to next? I think people should listen to Trilogy. I think it's a masterpiece, and I think it's overshadowed by brain salad surgery. And maybe in an ideal world, they'll, you know, see Emerson Lake Palmer in a new light. At the very least, it's got O-Down on it. So, it's a great tune. Nice. And what about you, Lee? I gotta go with brain salad surgery. I still think Carnival 9 is one of the best multi-movement pieces ever written. Yeah, I can't really argue with that. There are no wrong answers, but those are the right answers. What about you, Tony? I think people rightfully so dump all over love beach and i would love to have a listener at us on twitter and tell me something i don't know about love beach that's going to spontaneously change my mind about that awful awful album find uh, the redeeming quality i challenge you <laughs> they have hairy chests that's the only redeeming quality that's not redeeming yeah um and actually i th- don't think they do do they i haven't looked at that in so long i'm not sure we see their chest but no, no do don't we? go there and listeners don't look at the cover just listen to the music no too late so <laughs> Awesome. That brings us to a wrap on yet another UP3 show. As we exit, don't forget you can find us on Twitter at UP3 show, or you can contact us via email at UP3 show. Yeah, Keith is a pretty hairy chested guy, man. (laughs) Actually, okay, so Carl Carl didn't, yeah, Carl didn't take his shirt off, but Greg and 
Keith, man. There's a, a documentary. Carl Palmer with his shirt off. And they were kind of old guys by, back then. I say then. again, <laughs> I record with children. Carl pulled his shirt off. It's like, Carl, come on, man. <laughs> He's wearing a damn shirt. So as we exit, please don't forget that we do better than this. And you can find us on Twitter at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. And I forgot we're also on Instagram. Don't forget we're on Instagram at UP3Show. We definitely want to hear from you guys about the kinds of topics you'd like for us to cover here in, in the future. If you want to show us some financial support, it's easy. You can support us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash UP3Show. You can also support us non-financially by simply going to our Podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcast, and then just hit the subscribe button, the like button. If it gives you an option like Apple does to leave a comment, leave us a nice comment. This helps surface the podcast to other listeners. Yeah. Bye. Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.